We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. It's the Sunday debate, and this week we're asking what Italy's new Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, means for Europe. Joining us on the podcast to offer their perspectives are David Broder, Europe editor at Jacobin Magazine, Luigi Scazzieri, senior researcher for the Centre of European Reform, and Balaz Orban, political director of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Our host for this debate is broadcaster and journalist Philippa Thomas. Here's Philippa with more. Just last week, Giorgia Maloney, leader of the party Brothers of Italy, was sworn in as Italy's prime minister and the country's first female prime minister. Her harshest critics have described her as a fascist threat to Italy and to Europe, to the economy, to democracy, to human rights. Others, though, have rejoiced at this new premiership, including Hungary's leader, Viktor Orban, describing Maloney's victory as a big day for the European right. One thing that many can agree on is that so far, Maloney has held her cards close to her chest. She remains somewhat ambiguous. While she had previously praised Mussolini as a good politician, her election campaign this year showcased a democratic, liberal, conservative side, a toned-down version of previous iterations of herself. Now, the rest of Europe watches closely to see how she will govern. And I'm joined by three guests to discuss what Italy's Giorgia Meloni means for Europe. David Broder. Welcome. David is Europe editor of American political magazine Jacobin. His upcoming book is called Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. Luigi Scazzieri is a senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform. And Balash Orban is a Hungarian lawyer, political scientist and university lecturer who has served as political director uh, for the Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, since 2021. Though I should probably note at this point that you are not actually uh, related, Balash. David, Luigi, Balash, welcome all to Intelligence Squared. And I'm just going to start by asking each of you in turn, 
David first. Is Georgia Maloney a threat to Europe? Well, I think that she's a threat in the sense that she represents the continuation of a wider process we're seeing in Europe, which is the collapse of the distinction between the centre-right and the far-right. In Italy, of course, this process isn't entirely new. So I think you know, we're not going to see a sudden shock or clash or confrontation between the Italian government and the European Union, uh, but rather it's a, a continuation of a process that's already been underway in Italy for some 30 years. In fact, since the, the first Berlusconi government. Uh, so we see a certain pattern of uh, norm erosion, of intensification of nationalist identity politics, of anti-immigrant politics, uh, also other kind of civil rights issues. So I think, you know, we're not going to see any sort of attempt to break with the European framework. I think in the first, uh, you know, in the election campaign and the first days of Meloni's government, she's actually emphasised her conformism with the existing European order. But rather, I think it's part of a reactionary turn in the sense of a demonization of uh, internal critics, of the left, uh, of minorities. If we look at the ministerial picks she's made already, I think that there's a strong potential for that kind of, sort of culture wars and civil rights type uh, fighting. Uh, but at the moment, I think that uh, the approach towards European institutions is likely to be relatively conservative. Luigi, is it correct, do you think, to call this a reactionary turn? And if so, do you see this as a threat? I think concerns uh, about threat stem from uh, several different elements. Uh, first of all, the state of democracy, uh, democratic rights in Italy, uh, given uh, Maloney's background. Some are concerned about that. Then there are concerns about Italy's uh, economy, uh, given the, the very high levels of public debt and what that might mean for the, for the European economy in a broader sense. And also there are concerns about Italy's foreign policy and place in the broader West because of some of Maloney's past positions, but also because of the positions that her allies Berlusconi and, uh, and Salvini have towards, uh, towards Putin. But I think on all three counts, there's, there's reason to believe that Maloney won't be uh, particularly disruptive. In, in economic terms, despite the election promises that her coalition made, I think she is very aware of the constraints uh, that Italy faces. And you know, judging by her speech and the measures that are being discussed as part of the budget, uh, it's all about trying to water down previous election promises and uh, operating within the constraints that have been have been set. In terms of the state of Italian democracy, even if Maloney did want to uh, undermine the, the rule of law, I mean, the major fear really was that she would win enough votes to uh, change the constitution, to be able to change the constitution. That would have required a two-thirds majority in, in both houses of parliament, which coalition does not have, which means that any changes need a, a referendum. And to be honest, that's very unlikely to pass. So I don't think this would be a likely outcome. And finally, in terms of Italy's broader positioning in the West and its relations with Russia, there again, uh, Maloney has been very strong in her support for Ukraine, very strong in saying that she is within, within NATO, a founding member of the European Union and so on. And, you know, yes, the positions of some of her allies are concerning. But uh, ultimately, you know, Salvini was in government also before, for example, and it's not as if he ever vetoed sanctions on Russia. And the same is true of Berlusconi's party, which was, after all, a member of Gravity's government. Again, there, I think there's a picture of continuity. Of course, there's, there is going to be some turbulence in relations with the EU, but um, I think that should be fairly contained. Balash, I want to ask you whether you think Georgia Maloney is a threat within Europe 
and also whether she should be. Should she be threatening the established order, disrupting it in some ways, do you think? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I I would rather talk from the European equilibrium point of view. And I think uh, this kind of European equilibrium after the winning of uh, Giorgia Meloni will be in a much uh, better shape than it is right now. Because uh, European history and the integration of European Union was always about keeping a balance between um, the federalistic views and and uh, and those who are believing that the EU should remain a peaceful way of cooperation of European nations. And the problem in the last years after the Brexit and after some election results was that this equilibrium just somehow collapsed and uh, many of the Brazilian institutions, mainly the parliament, partly the commission, but also it's uh, quite visible in the council because, because many of the European leaders are representing a federalistic idea about the future of um, Europe. Uh, they are not traditionalist in, in uh, some sense and, uh, and they put a lot of political pressure on, on those countries who wanted to go to a different pattern. We in Hungary experienced it several times, but I think our Polish friends has um, the same experience as well. And we think that uh, with Italy represented by a leader who is uh, originally coming from a conservative right-wing, pro-nation, pro-traditional family, anti-mass immigration political camp, this equilibrium can be can be restored. And I think it will be very much beneficially for, for everybody who is involved in European politics, not just Italians or Hungarians or Polish. That idea of restoring an equilibrium within Europe in which nation states like Hungary, Poland, perhaps Italy feel they belong more. I'd like to hear some reaction, David, when you hear that, uh, that phrase about rebalancing or restoring equilibrium, what comes to mind? Well, I think that um, maybe, let's say, five or six years ago, for example, if we look at the, the Fratelli d'Italia Congress documents from, from five years ago, when they had their conference in Trieste, they very much looked countries like Poland and Hungary as kind of examples of, of their vision of Europe. So a lot of this discussion of defending European civilization, but not the European project for the integration and so on. But I think they've actually moved away from that uh, slightly uh, also for two main reasons, one of which is the European recovery funds have made more important Italy's commitment to, I mean, I think, you know, we've seen in, in Milani's uh, discussion of the recovery funds and, and of Draghi's economic plans uh, has basically committed to keeping them more or less as they are. And, you know, with some details and changes, probably less emphasis on, on green issues and, and so on. But also, I mean, I think that the, the war in Ukraine has made a difference also in the sense that, uh, as Giovanni Orsina, a political scientist, points out, I think that the group of the European Parliament around Meloni, the European Conservatives and Reformists, has broadly been more pro-Ukraine than some of the other far-right parties, uh, and including, of course, the, the Hungarian government itself. So I think that the um, sort of specifically kind of foreign policy dimension of Fratelli d'Italia has become 
become less distinctive as a as a radical right policy. However, I think that some of the things Balas just said in terms of the you know the defence of the so called traditional family of marriage as a right just for heterosexual couples of sort of pro birth rates policies. I mean, the the new government has changed the name of the Ministry of Family to the Ministry of Birth Rates, and of course issues around immigration. I think those kind of those kind of things are the focus we're more likely to see from this government, uh, a kind of more a focus more on Italian national identity and on the family and so on, rather than a kind of conflict with the EU, which regards Italy's international position. Before I come to you, Luigi, I want to come back to Balash just to ask, in terms of Meloni's impact uh, within Europe as a whole. Are you hoping, for example, that um, this will give heart to Vox in Spain or, or give momentum to Vox in Spain? Do you see her as being one of several, you know, not the end of a process? <laughs> well, you know, but the problem is uh, is uh, the international cooperation of the conservative right-wing forces, because uh, from an intellectual point of view, it's always more difficult than the cooperation of the liberal forces, because uh, I don't want to go into the details, but if you have a liberal mindset, then uh, the values, your values are universal. So you can have exactly the same opinion as a liberal um, in, I don't know, Beijing, in uh, uh, Cape Town, in Stockholm, in Washington, D.C. So it doesn't matter in which part of the world you are. If you have a liberal mindset, then, then you have a universal solution for all the political problems. Meanwhile, if you are a conservative, then it means that it has it has a historical, traditional, socio-cultural context. So you can find some common points with conservatives coming from other countries, but but based on geopolitics, based on your history of your country, there will be always some some differences. So that's why the international cooperation of conservative national right-wing forces is, is not so simple. What I wanted to say is that, and it's an answer to your question as well, that um, these ideas are not just represented by Poland or Hungary or Italy. Obviously, we do not agree on every issues, but it is true that these levels, uh, these ideas are represented on a governmental level by these countries. But you have the political representation of these ideas in every single member state, in, in Sweden, in the Netherlands, in France, in, in Spain. The problem from my perspective is the European Union and as in institutional framework, which is uh, which is um, mainly influenced by European Parliament, where there are where there is always party ideology, but traditionally it's influenced by representative of the elected governments, and this equilibrium was uh, which was destroyed after the Brexit. I think that these forces are because the traditional center-right political parties in Germany and in some other countries, they are shifting toward, toward the left. So they show more openness toward the ideas of the traditional left, greens, liberals, whatever you, uh, you call it. So there is always a gap. And there are, it's true that there are newcomer parties who are coming up and, and try to fill this kind of gap. And I think that's one key element of, uh, of Giorgio Meloni's party and can be one key element of the success of the Vox party in uh, Spain. But so it's, it's part, of, part of a bigger trend, uh, but it's linked to the shift inside the European political party system. And Luigi, if we come to you on the state of the European project, 
What does Giorgio Maloney's success in Italy bode? What does it What does it say to you? I think it's uh, it's clearly part of that broader trend, which uh, both uh, both David and Balash have, uh, have talk, talked about, in the sense that Maloney's part of that populist, Eurosceptical, though slightly less so these days, anti-integration bloc in Europe. Now, these aren't political parties or, or countries that want to leave the EU. They understand, of course, that it is uh, too important. Uh, but they, they essentially think that the powers of the union are have gone too far in some cases and, and, in, in, and in any case should definitely not go further. So what I think it, Maloney's victory definitely means is that any scope for treaty reform, for example, is very curtailed. There was an idea to open up the treaties coming out from the so-called Conference on the Future of Europe. There was already scepticism amongst many member states, but now I think that's definitely not going to happen. And also there was the idea of moving launch, for example, by, by Olaf Scholz, goodness, Prague speech recently, of moving towards greater qualified majority voting in in many policy areas. And again, I think Maloney's victory adds to the block of countries that does not want this because essentially they see it as a, a further encroachment on national sovereignty. It's not as if there cannot be European cooperation on, on issues, for example, like energy, like migration, like international development, like security and defense. But the role of supranational institutions of the European Commission, I think, will be very much curtailed in any integration that does uh, that does take place. And then there's, I think, the impact on the perhaps more digging down on individual policy areas. So if we think of, of climate, for example, well, then Maloney's uh, victory means that there is, I think, yet another government that is uh, sceptical of transitioning in a manner that would undermine the economy. If we think of trade, then again, it's yet another government that is against free trade. It is in favour of more protectionist policies at a EU level. Advertising hasn't always had the best reputation. Whether it's playing on our most primal fears, encouraging needless consumption or perpetuating damaging stereotypes, it can sometimes feel that the ad industry has a lot to answer for. But can advertising's immense power actually be used for good? In this new series, produced by Intelligence Squared in partnership with Havas US, two of Havas's chief creative officers, Myra Nussbaum and Dan Lucy, Talk to the people who are harnessing the power of advertising to help people and the planet. In each episode, Dan and Myra will speak to the creatives and marketeers who are using advertising to combat misinformation, racial inequality, gun violence and other blights on our world. Search Advertising Will Save Us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and join us as we ask, could advertising help save us after all? Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool. And I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Well, there are other policies that I would like us to come to. I'd like us to talk about immigration. I'd like us to talk about uh, Ukraine and Putin. But just before that, I want to come back, and David, come to you first on this, to what Giorgio Maloney and the Brothers of Italy stand for, what it means that she is now the Italian prime minister. Is it correct? Is it helpful to talk about the return of fascism in any way? Well, I think in order to understand the history of Meloni's party, then you do indeed need to understand its roots in the post-war neo-fascist tradition. Giorgio Meloni and other leaders like, for example, Ignazio Larusa, who's the uh, president of the, of the lower house of parliament, they come from a party called the MSI, which was created in 1946 and basically intended to be a continuity fascist party that would operate in a democracy. Now, they often refer to the MSI tradition as that of the democratic right in the post-war republic. But it was also a party that explicitly called itself fascist, relied on fascist ideas and reference points and ways of thinking. There were, of course, also uh, violent and terroristic uh, fascist groups in post-war Italy. But I mean, I think that the way to, to see it is not like this is a return of fascism in the sense you know, of anything to do with political violence or dictatorship, but rather it's the integration of some fascist ideas into a broader right-wing frame, into a broader uh, nationalist and even ethno-nationalist politics, uh, which is able also to integrate other ideas which aren't from the fascist tradition. I think an interesting example would be the use by Milani uh, very many times, her citation of great replacement theory and the idea of a plot organized by George Soros, by financiers, for a uh, ethnic substitution of the white European population by, by immigrants, by Muslims, uh, by Africans, and so on. Uh, and there's also a certain connection with this kind of natalist policy. You know, we need to boost birth rates to, to revive the Italian population and you know, stop it being overwhelmed, by, as she would see it, by, by immigrants and so on. And, and also, of course, it's also true that the, the way that the party talks about history is not a celebration of historical fascism, but rather a presentation of post-war 
neo-fascists as like victims of an overbearing anti-fascism. And even in, in Melanie's speech in, to Parliament the other day, she sort of referred to this. So I think it's a kind of, it's not a celebration of historical fascism, but rather a, a kind of victim narrative of Italian history, which allows for a kind of politics of kind of national uh, defence. Balash, your reflections on my use of the word fascism. Um, I obviously disagree with uh, what was said by uh, David. If if uh, boosting birth rates is somehow linked to the idea of fascism, then every common sense based approach is linked to the idea. Did of, I link? Uh, did of, I link birth rates to fascism? You said that it's one sign of the fascist kind no, of tradition that they are talking about uh, uh, boosting birth rates. So so I, my problem is that that uh, mainly liberal, I would say not the classical liberal, but progressive uh, liberal commentators and uh, politicians, and this was extremely visible in, in the Italian election campaign as well, they are discredited themselves because if there is an ongoing campaign, they use the the word fascism as an as a, as a general accusation which makes it impossible to even think about that policy recommendations of uh, these parties are acceptable in a, a democracy and uh, my problem is that 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 it's kind of a political general accusation like uh, like like donald then. trump uh, donald trump is very close to fascism that the uk conservatives are like that like the spanish conservatives oh, like the italian ones like the hungarians to be, to be fair, even benjamin netanyahu is uh, his ideas are linked to fascism and, and policy content i take your i take your point um and come back to uh, what was just referred to, uh, migration, mass migration, the migration of, of many, many thousands of, of Muslims fleeing their countries into Europe. David referenced the Great Replacement Theory there um, earlier. You spoke about civilization, you know, the importance that's placed on civilization. Is there a clear line here, a clear difference that you feel Georgia Maloney is helping to underline for European audiences? Well, I think uh, I think the Italian right side they also see it in a in a very similar way that uh, population decline is a problem. Some commentators are saying that you know in a globalized era, decrease of population is not a problem because technological development will overtake all the problems. Uh, but we do think that population decline of in in Europe is a problem, and uh, there are always two solutions: either you uh, you have mass immigration, people from uh, different civilizations. Some countries are choosing these patterns. I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying that it can have negative effects as well from a cultural, civilizational, security, and even the labor, a labor market point of view. And some other countries, they think that instead of putting government money into huge integration programs, where we don't know whether they, in the long term, after two or three generations, whether they will be successful or not, instead of this, we should put and give more uh, government fundings uh, to families. And if there are Italians, if there are Hungarians, if there are Europeans who want to take more children, they are ready to do so, but they don't get enough support from the government, then we should rather financing immigration programs um, put this on the top of the priority list. This okay, is the so, idea, which is so according to my it's, understanding it's shared. from uh, Luigi again. And, and to point out that in her first speech to Parliament as Prime Minister, Giorgio Maloney 
stressed her aim to halt migrant boats. Immigration, mass migration uh, is going to be very much top of the agenda. It's it's not going to go away. This is not going to get smaller. Uh, and Luigi, it's so emotive. It's so political and it can be. So it can be exploited politically. Uh, what do you see about this topic within Italian politics? Well, I mean, I think migration's always, uh, and since 2014, been uh, a huge topic on the Italian political agenda that first drove the growth of the League, and then when Matteo Salvini's star faded, helped uh, propel Maloney to, uh, to victory. In terms of what policy changes her premiership will herald, I think, in a sense, European policy on migration has very much shifted towards the positions of, of Maloney anyway, in the sense that the EU, in order to stop the migration crisis of 14-15, essentially took an approach that was aimed at stopping people from arriving in Europe, right? Whether through the deals with Libya, the agreements with Turkey, and efforts to get countries of origin and transit to either stop people from leaving. But it's a political choice, isn't it, whether to draw attention to those who are still coming? Yeah, it's a political choice. And I think it's a choice that the parties of the right across Europe have, have very clearly made. In terms of, of change in approach, though, I think the main, most visible one is going to be that of uh, trying to prevent NGO boats from operating in the Mediterranean. This was something that Salvini placed very much emphasis on when he was interior minister. And we already see that that is, again, something that this government is, is likely to emphasize. And also, uh, they will continue trying to uh, get EU help and uh, to pull the EU with them where they can, for example, in trying to set up processing centers for migrants in North Africa, in trying to uh, secure greater cooperation from countries of origin to take back migrants whose asylum applications have failed. So in that sense, there's continuity. The biggest shift is the one on NGO boats, I think, where we go back to the policy of the government between 2018 and 19. And when it comes to migrants in Italy internally, now there, I think we'll have to see what exactly the government does. But I think it's easy to imagine that political rhetoric can translate into perhaps greater discrimination on the ground, even though that might not be legally sanctioned you can sense perhaps a shift in the political mood leading to a worsening of, of conditions. And another area where pressure from outside obviously really affects domestic politics is Ukraine, uh, is, is what's happening in Ukraine, the funding of, the sanctions that follow, and the risk of more uh, Ukrainians fleeing uh, across the borders into Western Europe. Uh, Balash. Do you feel that, that Maloney will be a voice that adds to the pressure for negotiation for Ukraine to talk to Putin? Should she be? I, I, think, uh, I think the war is definitely not uh, good for Europe, not good for European countries. So I think that the European interest should be peace. First, ceasefire negotiations, peace talks, and then peace agreement. And obviously, big countries uh, like Russia, Ukraine, United States, big European countries should be involved. So I think this is a position which is uh, based on logic and rationality because what we see is that the war is uh, destroying ourselves as well. Obviously, it's I think it's out of question even among uh, the European conservatives 
that we need to stand uh, next to Ukraine. We should help them. We in Hungary, we are taking a lot of refugees, and same in Poland. They in the military support, they are more active than we are. And Italian right side is uh, is also dedicated to to NATO commitments, which is according to my understanding, it's a good sign. But I hope that there will be a moment when. When European politics and the discussions in in Brussels will be more about restoring peace and not continuity or prolongation of of war. There will be midterm elections. uh, There will be election in Israel. Obviously, the Italian elections can also play a role in that. So so things uh, from a geopolitical point of view are, are changing. David, how do you see Giorgio Maloney's attitude to Ukraine, to Russia, Uh, she and her party have been admirers of Vladimir Putin. Yes. uh, I mean, I think particularly at the level of seeing Putin as a a sort of model of a sort of Christian and and indeed sort of identitarian leadership, then Meloni has praised Putin in that sense. And of course, it's also true that some Fratelli d'Italia, but not only, also Forza Italia, and probably particularly Lega officials have had close ties with going to the Donbass republics in recent years and so on. But I think in the election campaign, Meloni very strongly emphasised that her commitment to Ukraine at the Chernobyl summit, which is like a business summit, a bit like the Italian version of Davos, she kind of said, well, for our international credibility, we have to support Ukraine. And she was talking about Italy, but I think really she was talking about her own party. And I think part of the thing is that Italy's military contribution isn't that important to the stakes of the war overall. But I think it is important in terms of Milani's uh, leadership of the right and her place within Europe and within NATO and so on. If we look at the the voters of Fratelli d'Italia and the Lega, then they are basically hostile to continuing the sanctions and actually particularly the voters of Fratelli d'Italia. So I think that it could cause conflicts within the coalition. And we already see the Lega and indeed Berlusconi kind of somewhat raising questions over Italian support for for Ukraine. But I don't think it's very likely to happen because I think that the, the actual support is quite symbolic anyway. I mean, compared to countries like Britain, then the Italian contribution doesn't seem to me that important. But I think that the effect isn't really so much about the... Is, isn't just about the, the the foreign policy per se, but but is also to do with things like the economic fallout of the war, the recession, the fact that the refugees aren't only from Ukraine itself, but rather the, the food crisis uh, we can expect could cause very large amounts of migration from countries, for instance, like Lebanon, which already have uh, very large numbers of refugees from the Syrian civil war. So I think if we look at the kind of wider picture of the, the way that the war is going to affect the world economy and, and indeed even things like the food supply, then I think it could cause a lot of other types of turbulence, which maybe aren't so predictable now, but which will kind of show the kind of political colours of, of this government. So much always pace Bill Clinton comes back to the economy, doesn't it? And and Balash, want to come to you. But he next. used a different uh, quote Do, for explaining yes. it. Well, I was thinking of George <laughs> Stephanopoulos and and and, yeah, and, sure. and the and the. I mean, it's what it's what um, we were hearing earlier from Luigi about Italy needs economic help, financial help from the EU. Much comes back to that. But as we are seeing greater strains, you know, across the continent and beyond. What do you think of the dangers of of Europe tipping into recession having more of a political impact? It will have a political impact. 
I think the gentlemen are right. Uh, right now in Italy and uh, all across Europe, the most important problem for grassroots voters, for the people, is uh, economy. And uh, the fear of recession, inflation, high energy prices, and um, suffer of the middle class. And that's the reason why everybody has a feeling that we are facing um, a politically very turbulent and unstable time. Uh, governments can fail. Uh, political instability can rise, protests can emerge against um, against the government. So I think that the European debate in the future should mainly focus on solving these issues. And uh, the Brazilian institutions should, should play an important role to help the member states to counterbalance or to stop, even to stop the negative effects of the war and of our sanctions policy, which goes back or hits back to our own countries, because the purpose of of the sanction regime is um, to put pressure on Putin to stop the war against uh, uh, Ukraine. But but there are some side effects which are affecting our economy's negative side effects. And I think uh, European discussions, uh, larger discussions will be about this issue. And I think Italy will have a strong voice on that in a sense that uh, they need the recovery funds, which they didn't get yet the huge amount of money. Our countries like Poland, Hungary, we didn't get the recovery funds from the coronavirus uh, yet. We are under kind of a political blackmail. So, so I think... And this, uh, this some, matters hugely to all those national budgets. Yeah, of course. But but every, what I wanted to say is is that that I think uh, some kind of common sense approaches will emerge. Like we need to strengthen our military capabilities. We have to protect our competitiveness in economy. We have to be able to play an important role in the geopolitical games of the world instead of politically fighting well, against talk, each let, other. Let, let's come then to what a common sense approach might be for the Italian economy. Uh, Luigi, I think you said in your very opening remarks, Georgia Maloney, her hands will be tied to some extent by economic realities. And of course, we've just seen here in the UK how, uh, you know, coming into power with the aim of cutting taxes and going for growth can very quickly spook the markets to a very large extent. So how much freedom do you think Georgia Maloney has to, to make a difference economically? I think the answer is uh, very little at the moment. So they came to, uh, to power with a range of promises on issues like lowering taxes, introducing a flat tax on, on some sorts of income, raising pensions by lowering the retirement age. But also there were some uh, spending uh, cutting measures. Anyway, that any money that is available, which is increasingly less because of the rising cost of financing debt due to the rising interest rates in general, is going to be steered, uh, as we've heard from Maloney herself, towards uh, countering the rise in energy costs, which is directly linked to the discussion of the war, which we were uh, which we were just having, and it's one of the reasons why I think you know at the moment Maloney is being very strong in supporting Ukraine, partly to bridge that credibility gap, which she may have had coming into power with some international fears about what, what her premiership would mean for, for Italy's uh, support for Ukraine. But as the war drags on, internal pressure in Italy to you know, take steps to ease the crisis will increase. And what that translates into at the European level is that Maloney is going to be very, very insistent on a common EU response to face the challenge of higher energy prices. Now, this is something that Draghi was already doing, but of course, as uh, the cost of living bites even further, that is going to be even more of a priority for Italy. 
just briefly chipping into you know weapons deliveries and and so on i think there's also a question of that doesn't only affect italy but countries across the west in general of production capacity for new weapons and that being somewhat curtailed so that might be one of the reasons down the line why support for ukraine dries up from what you've all said in fact it's clear that Georgia Maloney is going to have to be not only a, a very effective campaigner, we've seen her, you know, out there with a charismatic appeal to, to her voters, but she's going to have to be quite a smart negotiator in European terms. Um, David, a final thought from you on how she's going to be able to, to play beyond her borders. I think that um, Fratelli d'Italia talk a lot about the idea that the previous leaders, previous Italian governments have gone into Europe without a strong sense of patriotism, that they've kind of subordinated themselves to Europe rather than stand up for the Italian interest. And so there's a lot of this rhetoric about like standing up for for Italy, you know, being a, a leading player in Europe. But I think it's not based on very much and doesn't really recognize the structural weaknesses of Italy within the European Union, both as a kind of military or diplomatic power, but also in terms of the uh, the public debt. And, you know, I think that Milani, even during the campaign, has sort of slapped down the idea raised by Matteo Salvini that Italy could try and push beyond budget deficit limits and that kind of thing. I think that she's aiming for a kind of mix of, uh, in fact, conformism to the situation she inherited from the Draghi government, plus with a lot of rhetoric aimed at domestic voters about being kind of bullish and standing up for herself. I think the problem she has in that sense is, is precisely the fact that her allies who are in the government but not in charge will be able to criticise her from within the government, particularly Matteo Salvini as the leader of the Lega, but maybe also Berlusconi, will basically be publicly urging her to be more conflictual and she won't be able to live up to it. So I think in terms of the, the problem is, is that she both has to accept a kind of external limit to Italy's real power and influence, but she has over very many years herself built up the idea that Italy could be more confrontational and her allies are going to exploit that in order to try and shift the balance within the right-wing coalition. Because we've already seen, including in this election just gone, that the main way for a right-wing party in Italy to pick up voters is to win them from its allies. You know, half of Milani's votes came from the Lega and Forza Italia. So I think we'll see a certain competitive dynamic uh, within the coalition uh, in that sense. I think that definition of challenge for her is where we're going to leave it. Uh, thank you, David Luigi Balash, for this fascinating discussion. You've been listening to the Sunday debate from Intelligence Squared. I've been Philippa Thomas. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.